0: Good evening. Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher and I manage the African American Department and I'm here to welcome each and every one of you on behalf of the CEO of the library, Dr. Carla Hayden, the boards of directors and the boards. So this evening, it is a pleasure to have Dr. Kay Wise Whitehead here, who will be talking about her new book. Note to My Colored Girl, The Civil War Pocket Diaries of Emily Frances Davis. But just to give you a little information about Dr. Whitehead, she is an Assistant Professor of Communication in African and African American Studies in the Department of Communications at Loyola University here in Baltimore. She's also a motivational speaker, a master teacher in African American history, a curriculum writer and lesson plan developer, an award winning former Baltimore City Middle School teacher, and a three time New York Emmy nominated documentary filmmaker. That's a lot, wow. <laughs> Dr. Whitehead was selected to participate in a 2013 and 2014 Black History Month panel sponsored by President Obama and the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. In February 2014, she was selected to moderate the panel on African-Americans in the armed services and in February 2013, she was one of the four experts selected nationwide to present on the topic of all the crosswords of emancipation and freedom. And she just told me this evening that her book won an award for the Association of Black Women Historians, so congratulations. So it is my pleasure, and I hope that you, each one of you welcome Dr. K. Wise-Whitehead to the Enoch Pratt Free Library.
1: Thank you very much. It is indeed my pleasure and my honor to be here at the Enoch Pratt Library. There's something about coming back home to speak and to share your work. So I have been looking forward to Enoch Pratt for quite a long time. I want to thank Vivian for that wonderful introduction. I've known Vivian for quite some time now. I know her work in African-American women's history, so I am indeed honored by that. I also want to thank Dr. Hayden. Uh, She really, really assisted me in terms of setting everything up and helping me to get profiles for the book. So we're going to do a little bit of everything tonight. I love doing book readings. I don't like traditional book readings. I always like to start by saying that. A traditional book reading is where you just share about the book. I like to speak a little bit broader than that. Talk about the book, talk about the ways the book have impacted me, and talk about what I think can happen with the work from this point on. So we're going to talk a little bit about Emily in Reconstructing Narratives. We're going to talk about this 19th century free black woman and this record that she kept. We're going to talk a bit about how poetry interweaves into her story and the ways in which I seek to interpret her life. I want to start with a poem, because I think poetry has a way of soothing your soul. It's been a long day, I'm sure, for me and others. So I want to start there. And this poem here is actually from my book on the Whitson Lecture, and it's called Meditations, kind of to open up the space. Commit yourself to being. Hope for those who have none, a lighthouse in the midst of a storm, a compass that points the way, a road that diverges from the well-worn path, a safe house for those who need a resting place, an end that is never full, a scholar in pursuit of new questions, a pilgrim in search of the magis, a voice that speaks the truth. Be a light that finds its way into every corner, a gear that shifts and moves us forward, a life that is well lived. Commit yourself to being. Commit yourself to be. Commit yourself, and then in the end, just commit. That's how I was with the Emily Francis Davis Diaries. They actually found me. When I talk about how work shows up at your house, Emily showed up in my mailbox. In 2005, I was a school teacher here in Baltimore City We had just moved down from New York I had been a filmmaker for 10 years in New York And I wanted to have life at a slower pace I wanted to take things easy in my older days So I said, I'll go and I'll teach school How hard could it be? <laughs> So I came down to Baltimore, participated in a teacher's program, and I had this vision of teaching in Baltimore City. I envisioned children coming in dressed in blue linen shorts, white linen shirts. I envisioned them bringing me apples and calling me teacher. I envisioned having this wonderful creative experience where we're sharing knowledge every single day, a quiet space where I can think and get my work done. They put me at one of the worst schools in Baltimore City, a school that had been persistently dangerous for three years. I did not know what that meant until I got there. I walked in the front door. Nobody was wearing linen. Nobody was happy to see me. They called me everything but a child of God. Teacher is not what they used to address me. And if they gave me food that day, I was definitely not going to eat it. But I enjoyed my work with the students here in Baltimore City. I was feeling very fulfilled because I believe that when you pour into young minds, you are in effect pouring into the future. There's something very powerful about being a teacher. There's something amazing about seeing that light come on in young people. It's amazing when you're talking to them and you're sharing and something just happens and they stop for a moment because new knowledge has taken place. So I loved my work here in Baltimore City. I came home from work one day, tired, and I opened up this envelope in my mailbox. And there was a note from a friend from Philadelphia, and she said, I found these in the basement. I made a copy. Perhaps you would be interested. I began to read these well-worn diaries, written by, at that time, what I thought was a white woman from 1863. I assumed it had to be a white woman because I studied 19th century black history and I did not know any names that were similar to Emily Davis. There's only a handful of black women from the 19th century who were blessed enough, were financially secure enough, who were literate enough to leave a written source over 150 years into the future. So I did not think at all that she was black. So I enjoyed reading it. Every day I would come home from work and I would read a few more passages about this woman named Emily Davis. It was in the August 1863 diary, and I remember this vividly because I believe in life you have a couple of different rebirths. You have, your, of course, your natural birth, and if you're part of a religion, you have your spiritual rebirth. Well, that day when I read in 1863, in her entry, when she said we was the only colored people in the room, I consider that to be my intellectual rebirth. I felt like Harriet Tubman. I mean, I looked at my hands, and they looked new. I looked at my feet, and they did too. And I said, something's going to happen, because who is this black woman in my mailbox, in my apartment over in Bolton Hill, who's getting ready to change my life? And the work of Emily Davis changed my life. I said, I've got to go to school. I've got to find out how to work with her I've got to find out what to do. Her diary begins in January 1st, 1863. That day, of course, is the day of Jubilee. And she starts by saying, today is a day of Jubilee. She ends her diary in December of 1865. What a nice bookend. And at the end of the 1865 diary, she actually writes, some Confederate villain has killed our president. The city is in deep mourning. It can't get any better than that. So I started with Emily, and it was a long journey. I entered into UMBC, into the dissertation program, because I figured that good work, hard work, necessary work, needs people who are trained to do it. And that's what I did. I studied Emily, and this is a bit about my work with her. I knew we had this continuum of 19th century black women. At one end of the continuum, we have enslaved women, and we tend to look at them as a mass. I mean, we have what we call our twin towers of enslaved women, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. We know everything about them. We have looked into their lives. We've reinterpreted their lives over and over again. But the individual enslaved women, we don't know anything about. we understand enough about American history to figure out why that is. There are not any records kept. Very few of the women actually knew how to write. Very few of the women knew how to read a newspaper and get an editorial in the newspaper. So you had this continuum. They were typically uneducated. They were immobile. They were not moving around. Harriet Tubman, as we know, was a rare exception. And even then, she had limitations. If you let my students tell you Harriet Tubman had wings, she freed like 300,000 people. She was everywhere. Canada, North America, Brazil. We know history has shown us, as we've done more study, that wasn't the case. She was limited, but she was mobile in comparison to this enslaved mass of women. They were stereotyped. They were bred as property. They were considered to be the term used in the newspaper at that time. They called them lesser blacks. In 1863, they had a series of editorials in the newspaper, and they were talking about among the free black community, what are we going to call ourselves? I thought that was very interesting because the same argument they were having in 1863, many of us can remember that argument today. I often say, you know, my grandfather was a colored man, my father is a black man, and I am an African-American woman, and we're all at the table together, trying to figure out still what do we call ourselves. The argument is not new. In 1863, they were talking about the same thing. What are we going to call ourselves? Are we colored Americans? Are we African Americans? Are we black Americans? Are we just Americans? And understandably so, they had the word just as a capital letter, just Americans. So they call enslaved people lesser blacks. I think about them when I look at this picture here, because that is a typical picture coming, of course, off the Library of Congress website. What did an enslaved woman look like and we know she doesn't stand for all enslaved women but this is our image when we think of enslaved women we can look at her and we can tell a picture we can look at her hands and we can tell she's been working we can look at her face and the years that she spent in enslavement we understand that the longer people were in America the farther they were removed from Africa and when they were born here at that point there was no memory no connection to Africa, They were born and they were enslaved from the womb until the grave. I have my children think about that sometime, my boys. I'm like, think about what it means that before you even take one independent breath, you already belong to someone. And as you take your last independent breath, you still belong to someone. On the other end of the continuum, you had these elite free black women. It was only a handful of them, but they were highly educated. They were cultured. They were what we call cosmopolitan women. They liked to play the lady in terms of dressing up, the hoop skirts, the makeup, the umbrellas, the long gloves. They were playing the lady. They were elitist, where they did not connect with women who were enslaved. They also did not connect with darker-skinned women. And this was huge at that time. They were mulatto. It meant something. The complexion of your skin guaranteed you access to certain communities, to certain churches, you were able to marry into certain families. Being mulatto was a status symbol, but it is not something you chose for yourself. At that time, the census takers would go around house to house. They would take one look at you and say, is anyone else home? and Theodore Hirshberg does a lot of work in this area, and they would say bring everybody downstairs who's home and they would go person by person determining whether you were mulatto or colored. So you could be mulatto and your husband's colored. Your son is mulatto but your daughter's colored. What they found in this study, if you were mulatto, you made more money than if you were colored. You were able to have certain jobs, you have got more education because of the color of your skin. So those were the elite women on the other end of the spectrum. I do have a picture of Sarah Bass Allen. So here, if you look at her, that's a different picture than what we have of the enslaved woman when you do this comparison. This mulatto skin. So I knew we had this continuum. What we did not have were women who rested in the middle between being enslaved and being elite. If they were not shopping, which is what a lot of elite women did, there's a war going on in their shopping, if they're not dating or writing op-eds or speaking or writing poetry or traveling in and out of America, and if they were not enslaved, then what were they doing? That's what I call the everyday woman, which is where I would put Emily. I call her ordinary. I call her everyday. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I had to find a term for her. She was conforming to a standard. She was usual. She was typical. Even though her work has survived, her life at that time was not extraordinary. She was not leading movements. She was not teaching at a school. Emily was actually a domestic and a seamstress. Based upon what she wrote in her diary, and I set her diary up as a gazetteer, where I started marking every time she mentioned something to get an idea of her life. When she had money, she would work as a seamstress. She would make dresses, and that was a valued skill. It was a skill that was learned on the hip. So for Emily to have been a seamstress, it meant her mother or her aunt, somebody in the home knew how to sew. When she ran out of money, she worked as a domestic for four different families in Philadelphia and in Harrisburg and in Germantown. What's interesting about Emily is that she seems to have another source of income. (coughs) So when she wasn't working with the family and she wasn't sewing dresses, Emily had a number of male visitors. And as you go through the diaries in the book, chart along with me, because I averaged out anywhere from 20 to 23 men per week would come and visit her. And she would say things as in, Michael came over, he left in the morning. John came over, he bought me roses, and he left in the morning. Vincent came over with the album, and he left in the morning. Now, Emily could have very easily stayed in the boarding house, where there was a section for men and a section for women. She also could have been staying in a room in a home, making decisions about her life. She was 19 years old in 1863, which is old to not be married. Today it's not unusual to be 19 and and single. In fact, we tend to tell women who are 19, take your time. Go to college first. At that time, for Emily to be 19 and single was a huge step, which meant she was in control of her own income. She was in control of her own life and in control of her own choices. This is why I was able to find her, because at this time, Once you got married, you took on your husband's name. So you may have been Michelle Jones before you got married. Once you got married, you became Mrs. John Smith. And when we look back in history, if we cannot find your marriage certificate, then Mary Jones is lost to us. Because we need to be able to connect Mary Jones to Mrs. John Smith. And if we can't do that, then historians have no record of Mary Jones after a certain point. Emily was not married. That's how I was able to find her in the records of her church. So as she moved through as a single woman, these are a couple of things that I knew about her. Both her parents were black. Her mother was mulatto, and her father was colored. Her father was actually enslaved here in Baltimore. Somehow, this enslaved man made his way up to Philadelphia and married a mulatto woman, which was unheard of at this time. How did her father marry up? Because that's the term that they use. He married a freeborn mulatto woman. They had four children, and all of four of the children went to the Institute for Colored Youth. They were all educated. So they were reading and they were writing. She had in her background, on her mother's side, quadroons, octaroons. She was freeborn versus freed, which is what her father was. Either he was freed or he had run away and claimed his own freedom. I have not been able to find records on her father. I only know what Emily talks about in her diary. So here she is. My research questions, and this is where I started. I knew that she was free, she was mulatto, and I was terming her as ordinary. I knew that she was educated because she was a literate woman. She was writing every single day over 30,000 words about her own life. She was involved with grassroots activism, with the Ladies' Union Association. She talks of attending meetings where Frederick Douglass spoke, both public meetings at Mother Bethel and private meetings at the home of William Still. She had a lot of leisure activity. She spent a lot of time with gentlemen and with her friends shopping, going to the wharf, traveling. Getting ice cream seems to be a big pastime of hers. She complained a lot about her hair and about her clothes. You can easily compare her diary to mine. You just change a couple of things, it's the same thing. And that's what makes her so interesting because she is so ordinary. It is hard to do a person-by-person comparison when you're talking about a Charlotte Fortin like an extraordinary woman coming from one of the richest families of Philadelphia. You can't really compare that way. Emily gives us a comparison because she was ordinary. This is how I termed her. I have not found anything other than that. What I considered myself to be, and I had to come up with the term, because you have to name yourself or somebody else will. When I was figuring out who Emily was, I said, well, I need to find a way to call what I'm doing. I knew I wasn't doing straight work as a historian, because historians don't do word-for-word transcriptions. You find the passages that you need, and then you do interpretation. I knew I wasn't a documents editor. Those are folks who work on, like, the Dolly Madison papers or the Thomas Jefferson papers, where they won't change a comma or a period. I knew I wasn't doing that. So just like I gave Emily a term, I had to come up with the term. And Dr. Wharton, my mentor, is here, and we wrestled with a couple of different terms. And we came up with forensic historical investigator. Which to me is like this fancy term, an FHI. Sometimes in the middle of the night when nobody believes in you, I'm telling you, you gotta believe in yourself. I made myself a badge that said FHI. <laughs> Nights when I couldn't get through the writing, I was saying, you know what, the FHI hat is on. I taught my kids, you gotta tiptoe when mommy's being an FHI. Because FHI was just a way of saying, I've got to finish this work, no matter what it's going to take out of me. I started with a couple of different facts about her, very, very small, and I want to share that with you. One, I knew her name was Emily F. Davis. In the front of her diaries, she wrote her name a number of different ways. She wrote an E-M-I-L-I-E in 1864 and 1865. She wrote an E-M-I-L-I-E. L-I-E, in 1863, and in the census it's spelled E-M-I-L-Y, three different spellings. I just made a choice, a choice that I just arbitrarily said, well, I'm just going to use E-M-I-L-I-E. I liked that spelling. I thought it was unusual, and it was written in two of her diaries. So I chose that, not knowing if that's the way it was really spelled, because I did not find her birth certificate I knew her birthday, February 18th, because every year on February 18th she would say, today is my birthday, and then she would make a decision about what she was going to do. I need to study God's word more. I need to focus on myself more. I need to do something different next year. So I knew February 18th was her birthday. I knew where she lived, somewhere within walking distance of the Institute for Colored Youth, which has since become Cheney University. She was a part of ICY. She attended classes there every Monday night. She was faithful to her work at this school. She enjoyed learning. She talks about taking the test, talks about passing the test, talks about studying for the test. Education and literacy is something that she vigorously pursued. I knew that she was a member of First African Presbyterian Church, which is also in walking distance from ICY. At that time, Reverend Jonathan Gibbs was the pastor of ICY. Jonathan Gibbs ended up leaving the church, going down to South Carolina and working with the free black men and women in South Carolina and then made his way to Florida where he then served in the government there. And there's a school named after Jonathan Gibbs. I found a lot of information on him. Well, while he was at the church, Jonathan Gibbs did something that was very unusual. Jonathan Gibbs, as a married man, Was having a relationship with a woman. That was just shocking. Now we read about it every day. Now it's not a big deal. At that time, it was shocking. Front page news. Emily writes about that in her diary. She said, People want to know what I think about Reverend Gibbs. I choose not to speak and to make a. Even in her own diary, she does not share her feelings here. I knew she had a brother. Her brother's name is Alfred. I found Alfred in the 1850 census, 1860 and 1870. I'm sorry, 1850 and 1860. By 1870, Alfred had died. He went off to war. He sustained some type of injury in the war, and he died in 1865. Alfred is very unusual, because what Emily charts is Alfred's desire to not go to war. I thought that was interesting, because I just assumed that every black man wanted to do what Frederick Douglass said do. Get a musket on your shoulder. You know, get a suit on your back. Because if you do that, then you will never be enslaved again. I thought every black man at that time wanted to join up to free those that were born, and if things did not change, were going to die enslaved. Alfred did not want to. Alfred's wife was very, very sick. They had just had a new son, Frederick. So Alfred wanted to stay home, and Emily charts Alfred's struggle. What is really fascinating about Alfred is that Alfred made his way up to the Canadian border. And when I did research, I found out that many African-American men at that time who did not want to fight in the Civil War would use the Underground Railroad to get to Canada to cross over, and that was the beginnings of the free black communities in Canada. Alfred unfortunately was caught at the Canadian border. They shipped him right on back and shipped him right on off to war. And while he was away at war, Alfred's wife Mary did die of a disease with her lungs. She had a brother, or so I thought he was a brother. His name was Elijah J. And she kept talking about Elijah J. And I said, Now, is this her big brother? Why is she in the home of Elijah J? Elijah Jay was one of the signers of the call to arms. He worked very closely with Frederick Douglass. He wanted to go to war. Elijah Jay turned out to be her uncle. His wife, Sarah, was one of the vice presidents of the Ladies Union Association. The Ladies Union Association was a free black group, club women, and they would raise money to send down to the enslaved communities of South Carolina. When you talk about doing life's work, My family is from South Carolina. Like, that was an amazing moment for me to think that my family was enslaved in South Carolina, and Emily at that time was sending money down to South Carolina. I like to claim, though I don't know for sure, that it was to help my family Mm -hmm. in South Carolina. I said, you left the work for me, girl. And then she had a best friend, and her name was Nellie. Emily and Nellie spent just about every day together. When Ellie is not around, Emily longs for her. Her heart breaks when Nellie when leaves the room. When Nellie doesn't return her phone call not phone calls, when <laughs> Nellie doesn't return her letters, <laughs> I think I've become too close to my subject here. When Nellie does not return her letters, Emily's heart breaks. She mourns when she feels that her and Nellie are at odds with one another. She mentions Nellie 504 times in a three-year period. At the same time, there's a man in Emily's life. His name is Vincent. Vincent and Nellie did not get along. When Vincent would come over, Nellie would get upset and leave. When Nellie would come over, Vincent would get upset and leave. She mentioned Vincent 224 times. There was something going on between Nellie and Vincent and Emily. I didn't want to take too much liberty into reading into her life. Like there's a line where you can't go too much farther. But mourning, and aching, and longing, and loving, and hoping, and waiting, and wishing all for Nellie. I found Nellie only in Emily's diary. I could not find Nellie anywhere else because Emily chose not to include Nellie's last name. Emily also chose not to include Vincent's last name. Let me tell you why this is so unusual. Every person that Emily mentioned other than Nellie and Vincent, she mentioned their last name. Emily had 12 different Marys in her life. Mary Jones, Mary Grew, Mary Johnson, Mary Williams. And every time she mentioned, she would say, Mary Jones came over. Mary Williams was here. She never gave Nellie's either full name, if it was a nickname, or her last name. The people that were closest to her are the ones I could not find. I find that to be a conscious decision on Emily's part. Maybe because it was too painful to talk about it. I wonder if she was writing for herself or for others. Because at that time, women would keep diaries and leave them open on the counter. People could come in. They could read letters from the war, read about the family. I wonder if Emily's diary was only for herself. I don't know. I know she wasn't writing for me. But her diaries have survived. Perhaps she wanted the diaries to be destroyed at the end of her life. Perhaps, like many people at that time, she said something similar to, when I die, burn my work. Perhaps. I do think about the fact that in this family that I have not been able to find, Emily's family, that these diaries were passed from hand to hand, in trunks, wrapped in cloth. I envision grandmothers on their deathbed say, look in my drawer, underneath my personables, grab that book. There are three of them there. They're very small. Hold on to them. They're important. They ended up at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Now, HSP actually has no idea how they got there. They were in a box in the basement on the third row on the shelf gathering dust When I called them after I read it and said, I'd like to talk to you about the diaries of Emily Francis Davis, they asked me who was that. I said, go down to the basement, third row, in the corner, gathering dust. There's a box. In that box, underneath two papers, there are three diaries. Can you get them out so we can talk about them? Because I think they need to be pulled out of the basement. Wouldn't you agree black women's voices need to come out of the basement, right? I said, her voice has got to come out of the basement and be added to the shelf and then added to the canon, of black women, like she needs to be studied. I know she attended lectures and concerts and club meetings. I know she worked every day. I know she was a literate woman. And I know she took guitar lessons because she talks about her fingers hurting. I only had 11 facts about her life. And that is where I started. So when I talk about being an FHI, a forensic historical investigator, what I mean is that I use census records to find her and her family That is how I found in 1850 that Emily was a domestic and that she had a sister and she had two brothers and she lived with her mother and her father. That is how I found out that she was mulatto and her father was colored. I found Emily in 1860. That is when I found that her brother, Alfred, no longer lived at the home, so I then went off to find him in the 1860 census as well. Her mother was still alive. Her father was there. So he had been there since 1850. At that point, Emily coming into 1860, was about 16 years old. At some point in 1863, she moved in with her uncle Elijah J. And then she moved again because she talks about the movement of her life. With these 11 facts, I had to try to connect Emily to all of these different places and all of these events. There were many nights, and I often laugh about this, Alice Walker... There's a lot of work on Zora Neale Hurston. She used to anyway. And she talks about trying to find out where Zora Neale Hurston was buried. She said she went out into the woods and she just called Zora Zora, hoping that Zora Neale Hurston's spirit would call to her so she can figure out where to lay the gravesite, right, where to put down the flowers, where to pull up the tombstone. I did the same thing for Emily. I traveled up to Eden Cemetery because this is where Emily's buried. It used to be Lebanon Cemetery. So I'm walking through the woods. I said, where's Emily buried? They didn't know. The guy said, somewhere out there. So if you can imagine with me, walking through the woods with a diary, a tape recorder and a hat, shouting, Emily, Emily, if you're here, you don't have to answer me. Just give me a sign. There is, at this point, nothing on the spot where they think that she's buried. My desire is to one day mark that spot. I said, Emily, because I made promise to her at that time, I said, this book does well, girl. <laughs> if you sell a lot of copies, sister, then I'm going to come back, and we've got to mark this spot, even if we have to decide where she's going to be. That's one of the things I would like to do. I want to also share with you a couple of passages from the book because I do want to encourage you to get notes from a colored girl, the Civil War pocket diaries of Emily Francis Davis. I tended to see Emily's diary as a code that needed to be broken. I believe in code breaking. I've been doing code breaking since I was eight years old. My father is a member of an organization, and they had these secret ritual books. And they would keep them on the shelf. And I remember growing up, my father would say, don't touch the books. Don't ever touch the books. How do you tell a child (laughs) not to touch? Because as soon as he left the house, the first thing I would do is touch the books. And I would pick up these big books, and it had a code in them, because they were all written in coded language. And at eight years old, I said, I've got to break this code. daddy would be so happy if I break it, because then he could read the books as well. So every day I would sit with my father's ritual books, and I worked on breaking this code. And I have memories of taking the books and just laying them across my forehead, saying, you know, the words will just jump out to me, and they will write themselves. I was so happy the day I broke that code. And when my father came home, I was so happy to say, Daddy, guess what? It has taken me a while, but I've broken the code so you can read your books now. I want to say the books were never seen in the house after that. (laughs) I didn't get in trouble. My father did tell the people, How can you say the code is hard to break? My eight year old broke it. (laughs) But that was for me a defining moment. Emily Davis's diary was a code to me. Who was she? Where was she from? How could I find out about this woman? Because writing, even in a diary, is not a private act. Even if it takes 150 years to get there, it will find its way into someone's hands and hopefully, like with Emily's work, into somebody's heart. I believe that the process of editing a diary demands that the researcher be deliberately articulate, which meant that I read every single word that I thought she wrote. And I say I thought she wrote because her handwriting is very difficult to read. These are the black and white copies that I received in the mail back in 2005. This is why it took me so long. This is why I laid the paper on my forehead in hopes that the words would be clear to me. I spent time writing over each letter trying to discover what I thought that she meant. I spent time after I copied them. I used magnifying glasses and set and did close readings to figure out what was she trying to say. This is before there were colored copies of them. Because today, if you go online, you can find colored copies of Emily Francis Davis's diary. I'm very happy about that project and being a part of it, to make her work available to anyone who would like to see it. At that time, it was just Emily and me, many nights. This here is from Wednesday, February 18th, 1863. I'll give you a moment to see if you can figure out what she was trying to say here. What I imagine is that Emily probably wrote at night because she wrote every single day. There are a couple of entries in the book where you can see the pen just kind of rolls off the page. I'm assuming she fell asleep at that point. Her diary went with her everywhere. If she was out, she had her diary with her. If she was traveling, her diary was with her because she talks about it. At that time, women's pockets were not, of course, on their pants or on their skirts. Pockets were either tied around your neck or tied around your waist. So, Emily's diaries, which are considered to be pocket diaries, fit right in the middle of your hand and then go inside your pocket. So, not only is the writing hard to read, the diaries are only about this big. So, let's see if you will correct your first test of the night. That's what she was saying. It is very unpleasant today. It is my birthday. Nevertheless, I feel thankful I have been spared so long. And if I should be spared in future, I will try and spend my time more profitable. So day by day, entry by entry, I went from here, from the full page, to single entries, to transcribing. And this here is really where my work started. You would think, once you transcribe it, the work is done. That's not really where the work starts. Then we have to figure out about what does she mean by more profitable? Well, what exactly were you doing prior to this point? And if it's your birthday and you want to be spared, well, that has kind of a religious undertone. If you've been spared so long, and if I should be spared in the future, finding her connections to the church. Emily both negotiated her freedom and expanded on the definition of it. Even though she was a free woman, she pushed the boundaries of freedom by doing things like this. To me, this is a conscious act of identity assertion. To say, I am important enough, I am significant enough to be remembered, to put my life down on they were teaching young people at this time how to write in their diaries. Their instructions, where you start every day with the weather and you put something down no matter how small, how insignificant. This was happening in the number of the middle and upper class white homes. Instructions for how to teach their children how to write in their diaries. Pocket diaries were actually created for men to be used by their wives to write down what the men did. Let that sink in for a second. So if the man was a farmer, or if he was a sailor, or if he had a store, the wife's job, if she was literate, was to record everything. We sold five potatoes today. I sailed off. The water's not too rough. That was the job of the wife. Emily pushed that boundary because she purchased her diaries for herself. On one of her January 2nd entries, she actually writes, I didn't have my diary. I ran out and got it today. And then she went back and put January 1st in there to catch up. So she was buying diaries for herself. What is very interesting is that Emily wrote in both pen and pencil. What you see here are the entries in pen. Ink was very expensive. So not only was she buying leather-bound diaries, she was also purchasing ink to record her life. When money was difficult to come by, Emily wrote in pencil. And those are the entries that are most difficult. The pencils, in many places, it has faded. That's when I begin to make choices. This is where I veer off from being a document's editor back into being a historian. Because I started using context clues to figure out what she meant. And I make a note about that in my methodology. I say, these are the choices that I have made. If you go through and you transcribe Emily's diary, you might come up with something different. That's that FHI nature. Because I know I cannot put a period at the end of Emily's story. Her life and the research is not finished. There are a number of different transcriptions from Emily. I had my students transcribe her work. And their entries are very, very different than mine. Because you can interpret spared as something else. There's one entry that really caught me. I thought she was saying, I cut the hoary out. And so I spent maybe two months trying to find out what hoary meant. I could not figure it out until I used my microscope and said, oh, she's saying body. I cut the body out. Well, as a seamstress, that makes sense. The work could not stop just because I thought it was what I thought it was. I found out that even my own thinking was flawed in many places. So the way that I checked to make sure that the work was real and that I saw what I thought I saw, I transcribed the black and white copies first into my computer. Then I traveled up to the Historical Society and I checked my transcriptions against the actual diaries because then you can really see the pencil. Then I gave the copies of my diaries to two different assistants who work with me at Loyola University. Then they worked on transcribing to make sure that what I was seeing was what was there. I didn't want to take too many liberties with her life. I want to share a few entries before I wrap up for Q&A. What I thought was most interesting about Emily. Emily, in April 1865, she was at a meeting of the Ladies' Union Association. And those of you who, of course, have studied in 1865, you know what happened in that April. Saturday, April 15, 1865. Very sad news was received this morning of the murder of the president. The city is in deep mourning. We were at a meeting of the association. It decided to postpone the fair. Now, that's Emily's entry. Underneath is where I add the context, where I note that at 7.22 a.m., President Lincoln died from complications from his gunshot wounds, and Andrew Johnson, of course, was inaugurated as the 17th President of the United States. Emily was at the Masonic Hall. She was attending a subcommittee meeting of the Ladies' Union Association of Philadelphia. They were planning a fair for April 17th. They were collecting money to send to the black soldiers down in Charleston, South Carolina. They rescheduled this event until May 15th. From Saturday, April 15th, all the way up until Saturday, April 22nd, Emily wrote every day about what was happening in the city while they were waiting for President Lincoln's body to arrive. Why is this so exciting? Because Emily's account at this moment stands as one of the only accounts written by a free black person that charts that week leading into Lincoln's body coming down. This one week of entries has been the one most requested and the most reprinted because we see it from the ground up. Emily participated on the ground when his body came. Listen here what she says. Saturday, April 22nd. Today, is the day long to be remembered. I have been very busy all morning. The president comes in town this afternoon. I thought that was fascinating. Just to stop there for a moment. She does not say the president's body. She does not say the coffin is coming. She says the president. As if he was still here. She's getting ready as if she's going to meet the president. Emily goes down and she stands in line with over 300 1,000 people who wanted to walk past his body laying in state. I went out about 3 in the afternoon. It was the grandest funeral I ever saw. The coffin and hearse was beautiful. But Emily couldn't get in. It was too crowded. So she goes back on Sunday. Listen here. This morning, I went down to see the president, but could not for the crowd. Very interesting sermon after church. Vincent and I tried to get to see the president. I got to see him after waiting four hours and a half. It was actually a sight worth seeing. She stood in line for four and a half hours so that she can witness this event. That, to me, speaks about the importance of her work. If you were not enslaved... And part of that mass of people who were fighting for freedom or you didn't know freedom was happening around you. If you were not elite and you had grown up in a household where there were money and goods and services and you traveled and you had education and you had money, you fit in the middle where most of the women sat at that time. Emily, of course, does not speak for all women. And I think that tendency to have one person speak for us is something we need to move away from in general, right? Emily does not speak for all free black women at that time, but what she gives us is just another lens to look into the free black community. Emily was an amazing person. At the end, as I always like to jump to the end for you, in 1865, Emily goes to Harrisburg, and she meets Vincent at the depot. She's going so she can bury Alfred. And she says that my heart is breaking. I hope never to have this type again, this day again. Alfred, oh my Alfred, is gone. She travels. She meets Nellie on the other side. Nellie and Emily bury Vincent together. She gets back on the train and comes back, and Vincent meets her here. The diary ends with her saying, All's well that ends well. And in my mind, despite the fact that she has witnessed the assassination of the president, the one who was bringing freedom to the free black communities and to the enslaved black communities, she had witnessed the death of her brother Alfred for some type of illness sustained from the war. She had witnessed the death of cousins and aunts and uncles and so many members of her church. She had witnessed her beloved pastor leaving First African Presbyterian because of his affair, and making his way to South Carolina. But she still looked forward. All's well that ends well. I thought my work was done. That is where I thought I was going to add my period. Could not sign Emily anywhere else. I thought the work was done. I wondered if she had ended up with Vincent or with Nellie. I wondered if she ever had children. And right before the book was going to press, I received a source in the mail. A friend of mine was in Philadelphia and said, I found this marriage certificate. Do you think that this Emily F. is your Emily F.? Well, it's nothing worse than having to call your publisher and say, I need you to hold on a second. I think something has happened that's changing everything. That marriage certificate was Emily's marriage certificate. In 1866, one year later, Emily got married. And everyone wants to know, to who? (laughs) Who did Emily marry? She married a guy by the name of George Bustil White. George White, she never mentions him by last name. She mentions two Georges in her diary. George Bustil White's father was Jacob White, one of the richest black men in Philadelphia. He owned Lebanon Cemetery, the only black-owned cemetery not connected to a church. Emily married up. (laughs) So she chose, even after talking about Nellie over 504 times and talking about Vincent over 224 times, to marry a man she never mentions really at all and three years' worth of diary. She got married to George in 1866. By 1867, Emily was pregnant, and she had five children rapidly, one after the other. She really cemented herself in that family very, very quickly. In the 1870 census, Emily Frances Davis, and I got her middle name from the marriage certificate. Emily Frances Davis, after cleaning houses for four women, from 1860 on back, after being a seamstress, and after longing, loving, waiting, hoping, wishing for Nellie, after talking about how Benson was ever constant in her life, she listed in the census that she was a domestic, and she put in parenthesis homemaker. And what that means after cleaning up other people's homes, Emily was now having someone clean up her home, because she was part of a very elite and wealthy family. I wonder if that is why she chose to stop writing diaries. Maybe her life was too public. Maybe the demands of taking care of children got to be too much for her. Or maybe we just haven't found them. Maybe they're still sitting in someone's attic or someone's basement. Perhaps this type of work will help people to check their basements and check their attics, find that history that has been lost, and help to reclaim it. So like Emily I believe that all is indeed well as well. That there is a gap that previously existed between elite women and enslaved women. Emily's diary, though it doesn't completely fill the gap, in my opinion, makes it a lot smaller. Thank you so much.
2: Um, Okay, Um, maybe I missed this. I don't know. Uh, Uh, the first question, I have two questions. One of them is, um, was the coffin that she really wanted to see, the Lincoln coffin, was that an open casket?
1: Yes, there was actually oh. a little, almost a piece of cloth over his face that they talk about in the records and how you could see that it got wet. And it was moisture. You so, couldn't yes, see his
2: face at all? Not,
1: it was something like a clear cloth oh. over his face. Okay. So she does not mention that. We just know that from historical records about the and, body.
2: And the second question, well, um, how was she born free? I mean, how does she get to be a free, free woman?
1: Well, at that time, Prior to 1657, your line came through your father, just like in England. So if your father was the king, then you, of course, were into a royal family. By 1658, records show us in Virginia, the first place to do this, changed that line and instead changed it to the line of the mother. So if your mother was enslaved, then you were as well. And we understand why, because there were so many relationships between enslaved women and Creole, French. English men who were all free, and you had all of these children being born, and they were trying to figure out, are they enslaved or free? So once they changed that line through the mother, because Emily's mother was born free, then she was freeborn. She did not get the line from her father, but from her mother. Now, I want to note that Emily does not mention her mother at all in any of her diary entries. I don't know if it means her mother left or if she died. I would be surprised if she died because Emily marked death all the time. She does not mention her mother in three years worth of entries.
0: Hey Kate. great hey, presentation. How are you? So um, I um I'm I'm struck by what you're talking about in terms of documenting life and thinking about today and the I don't want to say the over-documentation, but I have a friend who takes a picture of every meal that we eat when we go out. How does that, how, how, as you craft um, the discipline of FHI for further generations, how do you see that unfolding with this preponderance of, um, with Instagram and all these other things? How do you see like, the future FHI uh, category or, or career looking as, we, as, as people look back on our, day to, on our days today?
1: Thank you, that's an excellent question. Um, This idea of FHI, and and I laugh about this, and my friends laugh about it, but it's actually becoming a field. There are a number of young scholars who've looked at the work that I've done, and they're starting to do the same thing. I have a new book that's coming out. It'll be out actually next Thursday. And it's called Rethinking Emily Francis Davis, Lesson Plans for Teaching Her Civil War Pocket Diaries. I asked professors and high school and middle school teachers all around the country to read the book and tell me how you would teach this book in your classroom. I have a lesson plan in there that's an FHI lesson plan that actually spells out how to become an FHI. I also, which I think is fascinating, I took my first article I ever wrote about Emily in 2005. I republished that and I marked all the points where I thought I was correct, where I found out more information. So I thought she was with this person, but I found out that she wasn't. That to me is the process of being an FHI, knowing that the story is always changing. So I do spell out how to do that. I think it's going to be affected a lot because of the way that we remember ourselves. I teach in the communication department at Loyola University, and I have a number of students who mark every meal, every new shirt, every new blouse, every broken fingernail, every messed up lipstick mark, and they take a picture and they share it with the world. Because they're the star of their own worlds. I think anybody who has a Facebook page may feel the same way. I I mark myself as one of those people, a star in my own little universe. I think it makes it more difficult for us to do interpretation. So when my students are doing FHI work in my classroom, they have to go 24 hours without any technology before they start because I want them to take off the 21st century lens to try to figure out what Emily may have been talking about or what Frederick Douglass might have meant or what the work on Harriet Tubman tells us about black women. But to do that, you have to get off your own stage to really begin to view someone else's life, not as a witness to the event, but to get inside the event. Yes, ma'am. No, thank you. Um, hi. Hi. I'm visiting from out of town and I happen to see this. So I wanted to come down and thank talk you. and see you. Um, My question is, since you know about Emily, were you able to follow her genealogy to current time and maybe make any contact with relatives or anything to that effect? That's a great question. I have been able to find Emily. I know where she's buried. I know at Lebanon Cemetery her husband's buried there. At least three of her children and one grandchild is buried there. We have not been able to find any of Emily's relatives not for want of trying. I speak a lot in Philadelphia. I have done newspaper call outs. I have worked through HSP. We have not found anyone to come forward saying that they're a part of this family, particularly the white family. That's what really interests me, that the white family is so well-known at that time. There's a new documentary coming out about Emily Francis Davis. We just completed it. It's all about my work as an FHI to find Emily. And we hope that this documentary, once it gets on YouTube, people will watch it and they'll start thinking about their own history and then someone can connect it back. So not yet, but the work is not finished yet. Yes, I see three questions, four actually. (laughs) Yes, ma'am.
0: Dr. Whitehead, I
1: enjoyed you immensely. Thank Have you. a question regarding the pocket diaries. How many pages and all, and from the time you started to now, how long did it take okay. you before you put everything in print and you got to this point? Thank you. So the pocket diaries are roughly about one hundred pages because you do six entries per page. At the end of every one of the pocket diaries, there's a miscellaneous section which you just kind of free wrote. So you figure that It's roughly about 10,000 words a year. I counted each one of the words and put it into my program. I started working on the work in 2005. In 2009, my dissertation was completed, and that was only 1863. From 2009 to 2013, it took me that amount of time to finish it. So I've been working on Emily's diary. I'm almost sad to say almost 10 years I've been working on this work. Um, And the work is not finished. It takes a long time to find someone in the annals of history, particularly someone who's a person of color at a time when the records of people of color were not kept as consistently as other communities. I I just I must have missed something because you said especially.
2: You said especially the White
1: family. Yes. Could did she marry into a? Oh, um, that's a good question. No, she uh, her husband's last name was White. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) So the family of Jacob White. Not a problem. Yes. The the family was so well known at that time, I'm just surprised that there hasn't been more found on them. Thank
2: you. Great presentation, Kay. Thank you, Dr. Wharton. Um I wonder if you can say more about um the men who used to the the fact that men used to visit her okay. and what that meant for black women. I I know it does not mean what people might think it means in a twenty first century way. Okay. Um, but can you say more about
1: that? Okay. Uh, Emily did have quite a few men visiting, uh, quite a few I mean 20 or 23 men a week is quite a few different men at that time it could have been one of three things one she could have been making money under the table um, and that did happen at that time women were being paid to have sexual relationships but it was not something that was looked down upon in certain communities, it could have been they were paying for the pleasure of her time to be in the company of a cultured literate woman, men would pay for that, whether it was bringing her gloves or diaries or or taking her for ice cream just to sit and talk with her. It could have been, as I said before, that she lived in a boarding house and free black men were constantly passing through Philadelphia. Philadelphia, according to Frederick Douglass, was kind of a way station where it connected, you know, the enslaved communities of the south to the free communities of the north. So everybody passed through Philadelphia and they would stay different places. So it could be that they were staying there. She would meet them at a lecture. They would come home. They would spend the evening talking or sharing, they would go to the male section, she would go to the female section, and they would leave in the morning, which is why in my book, I did not say either one of those things, because I cannot make any conclusions about that. I don't know for certain where she lived. I have an idea, but she could have easily lived in a boarding house or in a private room. But I know the other thing about Emily. She was very connected to the elite community. Because she attended First African Presbyterian, because she went to meetings at the home of William Still, because she attended the Institute for Colored Youth, she probably lived in a boarding house where men just passed through. Because I cannot see a woman who made money underneath the table then marrying into one of the richest families in Philadelphia. There's no way she could have done that.
3: Okay, you, um, you, you. I have two um, kind of statements. The usually men of that era, they did never came. uh, If they were interested in being a suitor, if they were interested in a young lady, they never came to the house Mm empty-handed. That was the culture. Yes. And it wasn't that they were uh, paying for her time; Mm -hmm. it was that they were trying to show that they were capable of.
1: Taking, care, taking of care
3: of her and you know providing for her and give, kind of like you know bribing her more or less, and then two, um, I think this is, is very interesting. I, I think it's really good because black women have been so undermined in um, the our history and um, and given accounts when when of, of our contribution, and um, it kind of bothered me. I noticed when they had this uh, bicentennial mm-hmm. celebration and if you go to the flag house the uh, okay. banner flag house and they'll tell you about these women who who um, who uh, designed and made this flag with I think it was a week or something. Right. And they say it was um it was a Picker Pickerton Picker Pickerskill. They mentioned her, they mentioned her daughter, her mother, her cousins, or niece or whatever, and they said there were two black women. One Mike. was a slave and one was a free woman. Mike. But they never give their names. Yeah. And, and most people in the black community realize if there was a slave there, she definitely worked a lot of hours. Yes. So they did contribute, but they never got the credit for it. Yeah. And, I, and I also noticed, noticed on the Smithsonian, that um, well in uh, Wikipedia they only mentioned the one as an indentured servant, and they gave a name. And then um, in the Smithsonian, they only said that there was possibly an indentured servant. So they just totally disregarded the one. And right. I and I and I realized that when the person was a slave, whatever that slave owned or whatever they did, it was the ma- it was the person who owned them. Right. That the work belonged to them, the credit belonged to them. And um, the, uh, whatever property they had belonged to them. So I think this is a very important um, um, project that you've taken on. Thank you. And it kind of, you know, sets that out and says, okay, this woman has done something on her home. And she's not really ordinary. You called her ordinary, but she's not ordinary. You know, when you mention all the things that she did, as she, she was very active in a lot of things.
1: Yes, and the reason why, I'm so glad you brought that up, because the reason why I call her ordinary is because what she did within her community happened more often than not. The type of community where Emily lived, they were extremely active. They were literate. She wasn't the only female who was writing. She's just the only one that's been found. What I didn't want people to do, and you made some great points, I didn't want them to begin to look at Emily as extraordinary, which means removing her from what was happening at that time. No, she was ordinary, which meant that there was a very active bright and brilliant free black community doing this type of work every day. We just don't know about it, we don't study it, we tend to downplay it. So that's why I consciously chose the term ordinary or everyday to let people know this is what was happening. She's not the only one. She's the only one we've found thus far, but she's not the only one doing what she did. Thank- yes. Philadelphia is a special place.
2: Yeah. Philadelphia is where black people get studied like Philadelphia Negro. Right. You know, W.B. Du, yes.
1: du Bois' work, yes. W.B. Du
2: Bois' work, not that much later, Yep. really, if you think about it, it's within 50 years. Yeah. So Philadelphia is a special place. And the school she went to. For example, I see why. It's a Quaker school. Yes. Mm-hmm. And think about the Quaker influence. And that begins to tell you why you have that kind of black community yes. in Philadelphia. And you don't have it in um, Trenton for example. Or Baltimore. Orleans, yes, Baltimore, yes. You know, places, of, even other yeah. places above Mason Dixon, because Billy is an unusual place. Right. But in her location, she is working.
1: Yes. Now, I want to add that at Institute for Color Youth, they did have that pyramid system, which meant that in order to go from year to year, you had to test. So the classes got smaller every year. That tells me a lot about Emily, because she continued for three years. So every year she tested, she passed whatever the test was, and move to the next year. So she was special, but I don't want people to think she was the only one because her marks were not as high as other black women at that time. Yes. Thank you. It's an excellent presentation. Thank you. Um, I tend to buy, purchase books for my my two grandkids, and I think this. I like to get books that um, will about us that give some facts and you know for later on down the line. Your book is worth the price. I still want to know if you have it in, will be having it in the paperback at yes. some point. The book will be coming out in paperback. Um, we have delayed the paperback for another year um, because the hardback is doing very well, so I'm very excited about that. Um, but within the next year, it will be out in, um, in paperback. So thank you for asking. And if you check my website, I, I'll keep updating it because I often talk about what's happening with the book. And Yes, oh, yeah, for the, the paperback. And there's also, yeah, I definitely agree. We're also doing a version for children. I'm working now on an Emily Davis book for children. So that they'll be able to look at it. So think about that as well. And that should be out within the next year. Yes.
0: Okay, we want to thank, be, time is, of the, but I do have one question. Okay. And I wanted to know, what year did she attend ICY? Yes. She was there from
1: 1863 to 1865, what she talks about okay. in her diaries. Okay. Yes.
0: Thank you for a wonderful lecture. We have books out. We have books out in the hallway for purchase, and Kate will be signing. A prompt. Up front, thank you.